Welcome to Lionheart Radio. Our mission is to guide you with the martial arts, lessons from scripture, the Christian walk, and above all else to be more Christ-like in your life. Please join us as we unpack topics that will fundamentally help you get closer to the Lord and bridge the gap between the mind, body, and soul. So without further ado, I'd like to get started with today's lesson. And today's lesson uh, is the follies of victory. Okay, so what do I mean by that? So when you read history, okay, there's an overlap in physical warfare and spiritual warfare. Okay, and they have many similarities. You can learn from history and you can um, apply it to your spiritual life. And this is the essence of spiritual warfare. God will take physical warfare examples and show us there is a spiritual battle. The same way you need weapons for physical battle, you need weapons for the spiritual battle. The enemy, which is the devil, is seeking to devour and conspire. As a result, there is a great need for watchfulness, being on guard, and vigilance. Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which, if you guys would like to follow with me, is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 1-8, to says there's a time for peace and a time for war. Most Christians, however, will say there's only a time for peace. So much so that after World War I, World War I, that's a hard word, right? World War I, there's a movement of peace. There is a desire, a craving in the cultures of Great Britain and France specifically, and the United States that say, never again. In response to World War I, never again. No more war. Never again was the motto. We would rather do anything. We would rather pacify an enemy than to go to war again. As you will see, this will have dire consequences in the upcoming years. Now, the church at that time was a part of a great peace movement. However, if we take Solomon's words into consideration, then we must acknowledge that there is a time for peace and a time for war. There are times when war can be good, honorable, and righteous. To stand up and fight. If there's an evil that is perpetrating evil on weaker parties, what should the strong parties do? Especially when they have the power and the capacity to stop it. This is a tension point in the church. The ideas of non-resistance have crept into the house of God. You have extremes on both sides of the argument that sideline the fact that there is a time for peace and there's a time for war. There comes a time when you can't be passive with the enemy that is engaged against us. In regards to World War II, there are many rich aspects that we can learn from. A lot of those lessons can be learned before the war even starts. The main point to consider is that this war should have never happened. It's because good people did nothing that World War II as as an event even exists. The Follies of the Victors This comes from Winston Churchill's writings. A more potent definition would be the mistakes of those who had the authority and the power to keep the enemy at bay. Now, if we look at the map of Germany, uh, Germany shapeshifted from 1914 to 1918, 1939, and even in today's standards, 2020. You can see that the map kind of you know, starts out small, then gets bigger like a monster, and then it gets smaller again after World War II. There were definitely territory changes. So, and Germany, with that, their shape changed during World War II between territories lost and gained. Germany in World War I. 
Germany, after the Treaty of Versailles, which is the end of World War I, is looked upon as the aggressor and the guilty party. They were greatly penalized and lost territory and a major downsizing in its troops. And I'll get into more details later on on that. Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, has a rather interesting perspective of the war. Crimes were committed by the Germans under the Hitlerite domination, which find no equal in scale or wickedness, which would find no equalness that have darkened the human record. The wholesale massacre of systemized processes of six or seven million millions of men, women, and children in Germany in German execution camps exceeds in horror the rough and ready butcheries of Genghis Khan, and in scale reduces them to pygmy proportions. Deliberate extermination of whole populations was contemplated and pursued. And this you can also get into more detail if you were to read Hitler's hierarchy of the races, which he definitely had a hierarchy based on who you were and, and uh, how he saw you. And this is important because if you understand Hitler's fascism, they felt justified to do what they do because they thought they were better than others. But that could maybe be another podcast for another day. It is argued that evil, the evil that was witnessed in World War II is hard to match. Because not only do you have Hitler, but you also have Stalin in the USSR. And I would also add uh, Toho in Japan and Mussolini in Italy. In the USSR, 27 million deaths were in World War II alone. The extremes and evils that we're, we are going to witness at this time are very symbolic. When you study World War II, you will create a great parallel to your spiritual life. There is a very tangible evil that is desirous to destroy and devour whatever territory is left to it. The same is, is true with your soul. If you leave your soul unattended and unguarded, the devil will devour you. For this reason, there is a great need. I would even say we, I would even say we must rise up and create a defense. The question that is worth asking is, how did Hitler come to power? In Germany at that time, even when Germany was a Christian nation, how did it happen? To think, it's easier to think it could happen here in America because we are now a poor Christian, uh, I'm sorry, a post-Christian nation or even an anti-Christian nation, at least in worldly terms. Again, another subject for another day. How did they let this happen? Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are supposed to be sought in light, right? We are supposed to stand up against injustice. So what happened in Germany? Edmund, Edmund Burke has a very famous saying, saying, which I'm sure you all heard. All that evil needs to triumph is for good men to do nothing. So what are the essentials of doing something in the spiritual life? What are the differences to the tares and the wheat? Okay, if you're familiar with your Bible, Jesus talks about the tares and the wheat. They look very similar. The difference is one produces fruit and the other produces nothing. Sheeps and goats are also another example that Christ uses in the Bible. They are also different but similar. The sheep do things as the fruit of the Spirit dictates and the goat the exact opposite. We Christians have been given a victory, but we must tend to it well. We must caretake for it. If you are a parent, you can't assume your kids will grow up healthy. You must tend to them. You have to watch over your kids. The same is true with your soul. Christianity is an active engagement in the world that we live. 
because James 2.17 says, faith without works is dead. To stand for what is right, to represent what is true, and going back to the Edmund Burke quote, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. Good can go into a, a docile, suck-your-thumb state. Being good can be, pass, can be passive and have passivity, and even complacency. It can go to sleep. But evil, unfortunately, doesn't sleep. Evil is built to destroy, and good is built with the potential of going to sleep. We must know that about ourselves, and though we are saved by Christ, it also means that we can also drop the sword and the shield. It is my purpose, one who lived and was active in these days, is to first show how easily the tragedy of how the Second World War could have been prevented, how the malice of the wicked was reinforced by the weakness of the virtuous, Winston Churchill. And let that sit in for a little bit. And I even re- I'll even read the last part for you. How the malice of the wicked was reinforced by the weakness of the virtuous. Because the axis of evil was defeated, we have archived their notes and writings. We know this because Mussolini and Hitler were corresponding with each other. Now, this is good to study the mind of the enemy. And in contrast, Churchill in his writings begins to show us how the great Allied powers in World War II did not want to fight, but instead began to appease. The mistakes emboldened the wicked. It fortified and strengthened them. Again, Winston Churchill quotes, We shall see how the counsels of prudence and restraint become the prime agents of mortal danger, how the middle courses of safety and a quiet life could be found to lead to the bullseye of disaster. We today have the same desire of safety and the quiet life. After World War I, we defeated Germany. We have the Treaty of Versailles. We have the potential and desire to pursue the quiet and peaceful life, even to our detriment. And in our Christian faith, we have the shed blood, we have the authority, and we have the seated position. We have everything we need. However, we don't want to have to go back into the battle again. This is an understandable position. For those who have fought in a war, they are reluctant to go back into the fight. We also have our own personal battles that take their toll in our lives. You can't be a Christian and not have battles. This is pretty much a guarantee when our faith is at odds with the world, when our faith is counterculture to the layer of the wolf and its system. It's this reason why the Allied forces witness Hitler take control and power, and they do nothing. They turn away, and through complacency, allow it to happen. Let us use abortion as an example. If we as Christians decide to take action on abortion, that means we have to do something about it. If we have to do something about it, that means we have to hit the situation head on. If we have to hit the situation head on, we have to get uncomfortable. If we get uncomfortable, the dominoes start falling. We would rather look sideways. We know it's there, and we acknowledge it, and we say it's wrong. It's very easy to know an evil is out there and actually succumb to the desire for safety and the quiet life. And that kind of reminds me of that quote, the devil you know is worse than the devil you don't know. This essentially is the history of World War II, and this is how Hitler gained domination. 
It did not happen because Hitler was, a such, was such a great superpower, and he raised up overnight, and everyone tried to stop him, and no one could. He actually had zero power when he first started, and it's almost as if we lented him power. I mean, think about it. Germany was stripped from power at the end of World War I. A million pounds of military armament was taken from Germany. The United States and Britain gifted 1.5 million pounds back to them. We sponsored the military growth of Germany because we felt bad for them, because we felt they had a bad deal with the Treaty of Versailles. In Matthew 26:41, Jesus says, to watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, the word I want you guys to remember is Gregorio. The Greek word in the New Testament means to watch, to give strict attention to one's position, to be cautious regarding your foe, not fearful, but cautious. Jesus asked this question, are you Gregorio, to stand awake and alert through passivity and slumber? Calamity does not suddenly spring up and cause destruction. This is precisely the story of World War II. We were missing Gregorio. And for those of you who know your scripture, what happened? What was Jesus saying? Can you not stay up one night and pray with me? Because the disciples kept on falling asleep. And they kept on falling asleep. And that's kind of like the essence of what we're dealing with and what we're talking about. We fall asleep and the enemy is near. 1 Corinthians 16.13 says, Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Be aware. You have an enemy. And also, in this passage in 1 Corinthians 16.13, Paul also uses the word Gregorio. We have a spirit that is willing, but we also have a dimension of the body called the flesh. And that says, put down the sword and shield. It will be okay. It'll be fine. We all have the potential to match the allied power's failure in our own life and in our own everyday life. Despite the fact that the allies went through the war to end all wars, which is the name for World War I, or at least the nickname for it, we must still remain sharp, remain vigilant, even in, a time, even in times of peace. When you think the war is over, and you think that you can't handle that, guess what the devil is saying to you? That's right, you can't handle it. Put down the sword and the shield, and as a result, we say, I can't handle that. Every time there is a negative thought in your head, odds are, it's the devil saying it, or he is agreeing with you. He always plays that friend in your life, and I use the word friend in parentheses here, that doesn't have your best interest at heart. We fall into the enemy playbook. Paul the Apostle says, Gregorio, beware that you have an enemy. Stand fast in the faith then. You must know and understand you cannot be soft around the edges. You must be sturdy always. If we were speaking to the veterans and those involved with World War I, we would understand that they came out of a trauma. I understand that you came out of from, from a war. Even still, you must be on guard right now. We must be on guard right now. That the enemy will begin to rebuild and remount its offenses against you. If you set down your guard. Things to think about and meditate on. Number one. A great victory can be gained only to be lost. Two, though defeated, an enemy that remains unwatched is an enemy that can gain strength. 
3. When Gregorio, again watchfulness, is absent, the enemy will take back what he deems lost. This was Hitler's justification for war. What we are going to take back is the territory that you took from us, the Allied powers, and at the Treaty of Versailles, you unlawfully took it from us. Therefore, we want it back, and we're taking it back. But the potential danger here is if the enemy can take the whole world, he will do it. Scriptures will, the scripture will train us to be soldiers, to be watchful, and to be strong, to prepare as men. An important question to ask, if the enemy is defeated, why do we need to fight? When Christ said it was finished, he was correct. But from here, it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a struggle that there is an enemy before us, and we have been given authority against him, but we must exercise that authority. Unexercised authority is no exercise, I'm sorry, unexercised authority is no authority. And the enemy will most def definitely play our lack of exercise against us. He will come and destroy us if we don't hold our ground and keep the victory that we have been entrusted to. So, Hitler invades Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Poland. Three nations taken over by Germany. The invasion of Poland is the official start of World War II. Germany, when taking control of these three nations, they take control of their military force and conscriptions into the German military machine. Conscription means when you are forced into the army, especially against your will. It becomes a behemoth of a monster, which at some parts of the war seems impossible to stop. Great Britain decides to disarm after World War I. They were so tired of fighting, they thought to get rid of their armaments. But now, after they disarm and France falls, and France at the time, before World War II, was the most powerful nation um, of the Allied forces. So if France would have stepped in before Hitler moved, there would be no World War II. Now take a minute to think about that. After the Treaty of Versailles, France and Germany are en enemies, and France sticks it to Germany, makes them pay. France is the, the number one power in allied forces. Okay? When Hitler was moving, had uh, France had courage and said, no, enough. You will go no further? They wouldn't have went. That just blows my mind, understanding why this title of this uh, podcast is called The Follies of Victory. Winston, Winston Churchill, when asked what to call World War II, he called it the unnecessary war. Through our passivity as a church, we find ourselves engaging in unnecessary wars. If the church involves itself where it has to, and to not just strive for peace, there may be less problems in the world. When the Allied forces say never again, no more war, they got in return the worst war. Running away isn't the answer. It's wielding our weapons given to us. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds. June 28, 1919. World War I concluded, and the Treaty of Versailles was signed. Germans had no say. They had one of two choices, sign the harsh treaty or be occupied by Allied troops. Which, in hindsight, kind of makes you wonder. Maybe they shouldn't have signed the treaty. 
Who knows what would have happened? At this point, any position um, besides complacency is the correct position. But ironically, the treaty was imposed so that Germany could not start a new war. This abled Germany so that they cannot fight. Germany and France were mortal enemies. Because of this, France spearheads the signing of the treaty to really stick it to them, as we spoke about, and Germany had to reduce its forces from 6 million to 100,000 men. They had to get rid of its submarines, dispose of their military aircraft, liquidate most of its artillery, shrink its naval forces to six small battleships, and Germany had to give back French territories it occupied during World War I. Other territories to Poland and its neighbors had to give up all its colonies to the League of Nations, and Germany had to pay back the war reparations. The nation is destroyed, and then on top of that, they had to pay. Now, if we were to look at the numbers, they had to pay 132 billion gold marks, which took, by the way, 92 years to pay off. And that was the first payment. Essentially, it was devised that Germany would not be able to remake itself in a world superpower. There's no way that they can repay this debt and get back on their feet. But alas, that's exactly what happened. Why? Because good people did nothing. Why? Because they did not want to fight. They looked sideways and they saw the issue. They saw who Hitler was, but did not want to engage and face the issue. Meanwhile, Hitler knew this and he knew that they would do nothing. He betted on the fact that they did not want war. As a result, he moved forward knowing they wouldn't have stopped him. Hitler's generals even said he couldn't get away with that. Hitler's response was, they don't want to fight. People who write about Hitler say that he was demonically inspired, that he had a demon inside of him counseling him how to do this. And as a believer in Christ, I definitely believe that. Jesus Christ is crucified, resurrects on the third day. He smashes the head of the enemy. The enemy is on his heels. The power of sin is destroyed. His time is up. He is in no position anymore to harm or harass. On paper, the devil has no jurisdiction in our life. And the victory most definitely happened. It is indeed finished. However, we just have to exercise that authority. However, when given the chance, he will slime his way back into our lives like the snake on the tree in the Garden of Eden. How does this happen when good men do nothing? Why do good men do nothing? Do you know when you do nothing? We all have, we all know what God asks of us to do something, right? We don't act, we don't speak. If we get out, out of our comfort zones, it would bring displeasure and may even trials in our lives and even bring trials in our lives. It's possible someone may see you're a Christian and they may talk sideways about you. Whatever the reason, we have those reasons. The idea, the idea, um, brothers and sisters, is to get off the sidelines. Take action. Take action in the name of God. Now, Great Britain had their reasons why they didn't want to fight. They couldn't afford another war. World War I, Britain was the financial center of the world. And then after World War I, the financial... Uh, center switched to the United States and Wall Street. So Britain loses their position financially. Before World War I was romantic. War was considered romantic. But after they were disgusted. 
Afterward, they said no more war. The people didn't want to talk about war. If you did, you were considered a warmonger. You would be voted out of office if you talked about war with Germany. You know, this kind of reminds me of um, in a piece of ancient Greek history, uh, Themistocles, the Athenian orator. He knew Persia was coming, so but he knew that he he um, Athens found a very large silver deposit in their area that had all this money coming in, and so he knew he had one or two choices. He needed to build up the uh, the imperial navy to fight the Persians or to give the money to the Athenians so they can probably just either put it in their pocket or blow it somewhere. But Themistocles needed to convince the Athenians that we need this war, these war, uh, th these warships, to defend from Persia. But he couldn't mention Persia because the people at the same time, just like very similar to Great Britain, they were like, don't talk to us about Persia. That's a myth. That's a conspiracy theory. They're not coming. So what Themistocles had to do was he had to say he had to uh, to connect to the Athenian integrity and the and the patriotism of, of Athens and say our neighbors over here are going to build a bigger and better military than we are. So we better get on the ball so we can have a better military, uh, um, naval military or naval ships, if you will. So we better do that, otherwise we're going to be overshadowed by our neighbors. Now history proved Themistocles correct because it wasn't a conspiracy theory. The the um, the Persians did come, and this is known as the Greco-Persian War. But he had to use his prowess as an as an orator to convince them to build up the military, the the naval military, and as I say, the rest is history. So, in conclusion, what are some of the things you can bring to the foot of the cross? Perhaps it's the fear of doing something you know you should do. Each of us has things we can confess. We all have trauma points that are hindrances. Is it fear of getting involved? If God uh, lives in us, that means that we should stand up and do something to show the love of God. James 4.17 says, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him is sin. We do not need to let this defeated foe to ever put, his, put us under his thumb ever again. And the defeated foe is Satan. And remember, he is defeated. Okay, The cross finished him up. The cross crushed the head of the snake. But we have to act. We have to take our authority and run with it. We as a church have to be careful to stay this, to make sure we do the same. The reason why the boogeyman still exists and is tormenting us is because we refuse to stand and fight him. Let us, with our God, have the courage to fight. So that's the inaugural episode of Lionheart Media. Please check back often as I will be putting more curriculum, more spiritual stuff in conjunction with the physical art of Muay Thai. And if you would like to learn the art of Muay Thai, please contact me. The information's on, on the website. All right. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Yeah.